another episode of Geeks Crossing. At first I wasn't sure how it would turn out, but I think it came out alright. Let me start at the beginning. Hello and welcome to another episode of Geeks Crossing. Today represents a mighty milestone for my content on this podcast, the 10th volume of Renaissance Mash. For those of you just joining us for the fourth season of this podcast, first of all, welcome. Renaissance Mad is a little mini-series I like to do, semi-regularly, where I dive into the history and impact of something, as well as offer my own opinion on it from time to time. And when I say something, I mean it can literally be anything. We've now talked about Phineas and Ferb, former New York governor and presidential candidate Al Smith, The Muppets, Rankin-Bass Studios and the Rankin-Bass Holiday Specials, SpongeBob 3D platforming video games, Battle for Dream Island and other object shows, the cartoons of Discovery Kids and The Hub, the Disney Corporation, and the Broadway musical Rent. Needless to say, I can and will talk about pretty much anything on here, and today is no different. If you couldn't tell from the intro, we're talking about Nickelodeon's Doug. Or is it Disney's Doug? Well, we're talking about the classic cartoon Doug from the 90s. My closing solo episode of Season 3 was my countdown of my favorite 90s cartoons, and spoiler alert, one of those cartoons was Doug. While I was writing the script for that episode, I did a little research about the show and found some surprising information about the very interesting journey this show had. Plus, for nostalgia's sake, I decided to watch some early Doug and ended up watching almost the entire show, including the Disney episodes which I had never seen before. So while I have Doug fresh in my mind, it seems like the perfect time to do an episode showing this classic cartoon's rise to stardom and its bizarre yet fascinating network transfer from Nickelodeon to Disney Channel the likes of which we've never seen before. I mean, can you imagine if Disney bought Spongebob and just started airing new episodes on Disney Channel with the same rough synopsis but a different theme song, some new voice actors, new main characters, and a new crew? It would be insane, and that's exactly what happened back in the 90s with Doug. But to talk about the rise of Doug, we first have to talk about the rise of Nickelodeon. Nickelodeon has kind of gotten a reputation over the last 20 years as being a network that only cares about its cash cow, Spongebob Squarepants, and makes executive decisions based entirely around that show. Well, maybe that thinking comes back to Nickelodeon's origin, when its entire programming centered around a show called Pinwheel. Pinwheel was designed as a show in the style of Sesame Street, uh, which had started in 1969 and was massively successful. Vivian Horner, an educator who had previously worked at the Children's Television Workshop, the organization behind Sesame Street, now known today as Sesame Workshop, teamed up with producer Sandy Cavanaugh, who she had known from her time at the Children's Television Workshop, to create a television program for QUBE, one of the first cable systems, which launched out of Columbus, Ohio. Seeing as cable's currently on life support, the revolutionary nature of QUBE probably doesn't mean much to you, but cable was one of the most revolutionary cultural inventions of the 1980s. The idea that you could pay money and subscribe to a company that would give you exclusive content that idea was brand new, and QUBE was one of the leaders in this regard. It's not hard to see the line between that thinking and the thinking of Disney+, HBO Max, Paramount+, those kinds of streaming services. Anyway, since I'm sure you're wondering what QUBE has to do with Pinwheel, which has to do with Nickelodeon, which has to do with Doug, I guess I've gone off on a bit of a tangent, so let's wrap things up here. QUBE wanted to launch a children's channel, another revolutionary decision. And since Vivian Horner and Sandy Cavanaugh worked for the now-legendary studio behind Sesame Street, they were contacted. 
Horner created Pinwheel, a show about a cast of humans and puppets alike living in a boarding house together in a program mixed with skits, stories, and even some animated segments, which should sound very familiar to anyone who has seen Sesame Street. QUBE's children channel was called Channel C3 and was lauded as the first preschooler channel ever created. Pinwheel started airing on December 1st, 1977, to promising results. However, in 1979, Channel C3 was expanded into a larger channel called Nickelodeon to appeal to national audiences rather than just audiences in the Columbus, Ohio area. The children's programming from Channel C3 was organized into a programming block in a manner that would serve as the inspiration for Nick Jr. towards the end of the 80s. Pinwheel was still the big success story from this lineup, but Nickelodeon came up with some other new shows, including the short-lived Hocus Focus, which centered around an apprentice wizard being sent from the Middle Ages to the present day. Present day being the late 70s. The show was written by Sesame Street head writer Lou Berger, who would go on to help create Reading Rainbow, and the role of the apprentice wizard was taken by Brad Williams, a puppeteer who created the puppets for Pinwheel, in a rare live-action role. But one very interesting addition to the Hocus Focus cast was a fresh-faced 26-year-old named Jim Jenkins, who played the friendly but absent-minded Professor Rhombus. Jim Jenkins was born in 1953 and grew up in the suburbs of Richmond, Virginia. He grew up reading the Best Ever book series by Richard Scarry and the Peanuts comics of Charles Schulz, and as a result developed a love for doodling. Jenkins later went to Ohio State University to study animation and filmmaking and spent his 20s working in the PBS Children's Broadcasting Unit before he moved to New York and got his job with the fledgling Nickelodeon. Even though Hocus Focus only lasted a year, Jenkins remained with the new Nickelodeon network as it found its footing. In 1981, he joined the cast of Pinwheel, doing assorted voices in the animated segments. Jenkins had been a doodler his whole life, and this experience also helped him get gigs with two of Nickelodeon's other new shows. By the way, a children's show about a woman who would go on little adventures and talk to the viewers, with a mix of live-action and animated segments, and Video Comic Book, a show that narrated over DC Comics. After these short-lived shows came to a close, Jenkins left Nickelodeon to work at the Children's Television Workshop. For those keeping track at home, that was the Sesame Street organization and the big cheese in Children's Television before Nickelodeon came along. Jenkins got a role as head graphic designer on Square One Television, a children's comedy show with a diverse set of skits meant to help teach kids about math. Apparently, Weird Al Yankovic performed a polka about mathematical patterns in one episode, which... That's kind of (laughs) neat. After his work with Square One Television, Jenkins came to a crossroads in his life, and a certain boy and his pet dog were about to become very important. This boy and his dog had been the product of Jenkins' doodles from very early on in his career. Just an average little kid Jenkins liked to draw aimlessly from time to time. But after his time in the entertainment business, Jenkins was at a crossroads. By 1984, his jobs in the entertainment industry had mostly come to a close, and Jenkins was having trouble making ends meet. In addition, he suffered a bad cycling accident and was dumped by his girlfriend, suffering physical and emotional pain, and with a watchful and worried eye on his finances, Jenkins entered a state of uneasiness at best and mild depression at worst. It was at this time he turned his little boy character into a more autobiographical reflection of his childhood self. He gave the boy the name Brian, but later changed it to Doug, viewing it as a very common name that would fit a typical child character. And he plopped Doug into a sort of escapist world he started doodling. A fictional, idealized town Jenkins called Bluffington. This town was based on Richmond, Virginia, where Jenkins had grown up. He wanted to, and I quote, create a place where there was no overdue rent and no delinquent phone bills. 
With this more realized version of the character he'd been drawing for a while now, and a world in which he could live, Jim Jenkins put the final touches on the character while he met his friend and producer David Campbell for margaritas while the two of them were in New York. In fact, the reason Doug has a green sweater and bright red shoes is because the two men weren't completely sober while they were planning, as Jenkins likes to recount at least. Campbell and Jenkins had met at church in 1979 when both men were new to New York and quickly hit it off. The former told Jenkins he ought to write a children's book about Doug and Bluffington, a suggestion Jenkins liked the sound of, titled Doug Gets a New Pair of Shoes. The story Jenkins came up with revolved around, well, exactly what it sounds like. Doug goes shoe shopping and ends up with a large pair of shoes. Jenkins took the book shopping for publishers, but didn't find much luck. No publishers were interested in buying the story. The closest Jenkins got was with Simon and Schuster, a large American publisher, but at the last minute there was a change in executives and the new managers had no interest in the book. Jenkins was instead forced to turn to the world of advertising. Many companies liked the idea of Jenkins' little cartoon boy advertising their products, and so Doug made his first appearance not in a published children's book nor in a cartoon, but instead in animated commercials. In 1988, Doug starred in a commercial for Florida grapefruit growers in an ad for grapefruit juice that featured Doug silently hopping on a pogo stick, voiced over by the actor and writer Lorenzo Music, known at the time as the voice of Garfield the Cat. In 1989, Doug was used in a promotional bumper for the USA Network. Jenkins wanted more for his character than just commercials, of course, but nobody was shopping for his children's book, so it seemed like this was it. At least until his old business partner Nickelodeon got involved. Just as Jenkins was going through a journey from working as an actor and graphic designer to becoming a full-time illustrator and amateur animator, Nickelodeon had also been evolving in its own right. The same year Jenkins' life came at a crossroads and he began to creatively escape into the world of Bluffington, 1984 was also the first year Nickelodeon started airing commercials on its channel. That may not mean much to us, in fact it might sound rather annoying, but it meant that the channel was finally secure enough that advertisers were interested enough in providing money for commercials, allowing the channel to start making some decent money. As Pinwheel grew in popularity, and as Nickelodeon tinkered with new shows, the executives were in the market for something totally new. Instead of adapting pre-existing properties into cartoons, such as the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, for example, Nickelodeon executives were interested in pursuing completely independent animated shows. Due to his prior work on Pinwheel and other early Nickelodeon shows, Jenkins had an in with Nickelodeon, but instead of a children's book, the growing channel instead wanted Jenkins to pitch Doug as an animated series. Nickelodeon executive Vanessa Coffey met with Jenkins so that the latter could pitch his series. In the middle of the pitch, Coffey got up and exited the room. Obviously, this did not make Jenkins feel very confident, but as Coffey later explained to him, she literally ran to her boss to tell him that Jenkins was legit, his idea was awesome, and they should snatch him up while they could. So Jenkins got his deal to turn Doug into a pilot, and with that, the work really began. Jenkins used the turn of the decade between 1989 and 1990 to really build up the world of Bluffington and surround Doug and his pet dog Porkchop with other interesting characters. By this point, Doug the Kid was becoming more and more inspired by Jenkins during his own childhood, and so his peers would take inspiration from kids Jenkins knew growing up in Richmond. Doug's goofball best friend, Mosquito Valentine, nicknamed Skeeter, was based on Doug's childhood best friend, Tommy Roberts. And I guess this is a tangent. Due to his blue color, many fans came to wonder if Skeeter was supposed to be African-American. But since all of the characters of Doug are colored with varying hues, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and purple, in addition to 
actual human flesh colors like beige, tan, and brown, Jenkins has said that this is more of an artistic decision rather than racial portrayal, and that the message he wanted to get out there is that what color you are on the outside doesn't matter. It's what's inside that counts. Patty Mayonnaise was based on two girls Jenkins knew growing up, a girl named Pam Mayo and a girl named Patty, who Jenkins pined over in high school. Pam Mayo and Patty's names combined to become Doug's crush in the show. And then there's the loudmouth, bigger-than-his-britches bully, Roger Klotz. He, too, was based on a real bully Jenkins dealt with in high school. And the name Klotz was the last name of the family that lived next door to Jenkins' bully. So, figured it was a nice touch. Plenty of other characters, such as the doting old teacher Mrs. Wingo and the no-nonsense coach Mr. Spitz, were also based on people Jenkins knew growing up. The unseen school principal, Mr. Butsevich, shares his unique name with Jenkins' elementary school principal. Then there were other additions to the cast, such as Doug's plucky inventor neighbor, Mr. Dink, who were completely fabricated. Jenkins was a very nice gentleman, so when he made these decisions, he actually wrote letters to these various childhood inspirations and let them know, hey, you were the inspiration for this character in this cartoon I'm making. Hope that's okay. This led to some pretty interesting interactions. Jenkins' letter to Tommy Roberts, the original Skeeter, got the two back in touch, and their friendship was reignited. Jenkins' letter to real-life Patty made both him and Patty feel a little awkward, since this is basically a letter saying I had a huge crush on you in high school, but Patty ended up really liking the character's portrayal, and the two families kept in touch, visiting each other from time to time, and the Jenkins receiving Patty's family Christmas card each year. Jenkins was also more than a little nervous to reach out to his former bully, but ultimately, when Doug's first movie premiered, he felt he had to reach out. I hope you don't beat me up for this character, Jenkins quoted himself as having said to the real-life Roger. Roger's inspiration was incredibly lighthearted about the whole thing, and told Jenkins that everybody had a kid bigger and stronger than them who'd pick on them, including himself. Something that really stuck with Jenkins, to think that his childhood tormentor dealt with bullies too. With all these characters and more, Bluffington was starting to become full. Doug had a well-rounded family consisting of two loving parents, a dramatic and condescending older sister Judy, and a faithful canine companion in Porkchop, who had made his first animated appearance in that USA Network bumper from 1989. But what would Doug himself be? Again, he was significantly based on Jim Jenkins himself. Even his famous Quail Man alter ego was based on old home movies of Jenkins and Tommy Roberts dressing up as superheroes. But what was he actually going to do each episode? Well, Jenkins and Campbell, who would join the project as producer, were both devout Christians, having been raised so since childhood. Jenkins didn't want Doug to be explicitly religious, but he did think it was important for each episode of the show to involve a moral to have Doug learn some important lesson. The idea came that Doug would write in a journal and update the notebook, as well as the viewers, with what he's learned after his latest misadventure or social situation. Additionally, Doug has a wild imagination and often has fantasies and dreams about certain situations, including some situations in which he's a superhero, the daring defender of justice called Quail Man, who acts as a tongue-in-cheek reference to Superman. As for the physical development of the show, it was incredibly in-depth. Jenkins and the rest of the crew came up with a huge pitch bible that included the street and house layouts of nearly every major character, as well as the history of the fictional town of Bluffington. Jenkins had every writer for the show read the book front to back to make sure nothing ever got messed up. Now that's lore, if I can get my hands on that book. Artistically, the animation style resembled that of R.O. Blackman of the Ink Tank, an illustrator under whom Jenkins had studied in the past. Jenkins was an illustrator first, animator second, so the characters came to develop wiggly lines as borders, very clear in the first season especially. The music and sound design was its own beast, another key part of what makes Doug so memorable. 
Fred Newman, a vocal artist, was brought onto the team and would go on to voice Porkchop, Skeeter, and Mr. Dink, three of the show's most iconic characters. But a far more crucial component his voice brought with it was for the show's sound design. Newman has an amazing repertoire when it comes to crazy mouth noises, and not only were these incorporated into Skeeter's various hack-hacks and awooga, but it also provided the music for most of the show. Newman utilized scat singing, and this was reflected in the show's theme song and various background and transitional music throughout the episodes. Nearly every melody that plays is attributed to Newman, from the mock fanfare that plays when the mayor gives a speech, or Doug imagines himself famous, to the weird faux synthesizer music that plays whenever the twins Alan Moo are talking. It's not overstating to say that Newman's interesting musical choice gives Doug a lot of its charm. Jenkins certainly thought so, showering his actor and musician with praise for his unique form of sound design. And with the addition of rock and roll inspired songs from the in-universe band, The Beats, Doug ended up with a pretty banging soundtrack. So that's the planning, writing, and sound design down. By the start of 1991, the show was ready to hit production. We may have an automatic negative connotation with the phrase executive meddling, suits getting their grubby fingerprints all over the pure creative projects of pure creative people, but in the case of Doug, there were some pretty big changes and adaptations made to the show by executives that Jenkins would be very grateful for. In addition to organizing the airing and premieres of all three original Nicktoons, Rugrats, The Ren and Stimpy Show, and of course, Doug, Vanessa Coffey assigned Billy West, voice actor for Stimpy, as the voice actor for Doug. Jenkins had his doubts, as Stimpy was a very different character than Doug, but was ultimately extremely impressed with the guy. The studio also assigned story editors and writers from other live-action Nickelodeon projects, like The Adventures of Pete and Pete, and Clarissa Explains It All, to work on Doug. And writers like Will McRobb, of the former, came to become close working friends with Jenkins. And towards the end of development, when Jenkins was leaning towards changing the name of his show to The Funnies, Nickelodeon executives said, oh no, you don't keep it as Doug, the original name. Jenkins has gone on record saying he's very grateful they didn't let him go through with calling the show The Funnies. Even though executives had full reign for meddling, seeing as they had signed a contract with Jenkins, they actually didn't have as much power over the show as Nickelodeon has over its shows today. That's because when Jenkins entered agreements with the studio over his creation, he fought for ownership over the Doug property. Typically nowadays, when a channel like Nickelodeon is interested in buying a show, they'll just buy the property outright, allowing the creator to work on the show and typically giving them some degree of creative control. But at the end of the day, that's Nickelodeon's property now. But since this was very early and before there were rules on how this thing ought to be done, Jenkins was able to negotiate for full control and ownership of Doug. He did this by forming his own studio, Jumbo Pictures, and working on Doug through that, rather than under Nickelodeon itself. This contract took almost an entire year to negotiate, but it was a success for Jenkins. Basically, instead of a Nickelodeon-owned property, Doug was a Jumbo Pictures property being loaned to Nickelodeon. This will be important later. The team at Jumbo worked on a pilot, Doug Can't Dance, and the show was greenlit for 65 episodes with a possibility for more after. This will also be important later. So alongside creators Arlene Klasky and Gabor Supo of Rugrats and John Chris Felucci of The Ren and Stimpy Show, Jim Jenkins was at the forefront of one of the first Nicktoons, which aired together on August 11th, 1991. What a fascinating trio those shows were. You had a show about literal infants getting into baby shenanigans, a show that would join The Simpsons and Beavis and Butthead in reviving the adult animation industry and bringing it to heights never before seen, and then you had Doug, a story about a plucky, sensitive, imaginative middle schooler who moves to a new town and gets into misadventures. The first three Nicktoons became hits, 
and Nickelodeon knew they had stumbled upon a formula that would work. Animated cartoons were the future, it seemed. Of the original episodes of Doug that Jenkins, Campbell, and the cast and crew worked on, some should be familiar to us by now. Doug Can't Dance, the pilot episode, would air as the first episode of the first season. Doug Bags a Nematode, which sees Doug and his family move to Bluffington and meet the colorful cast of primary and supporting characters, would be the third episode to air, even though it was the first episode chronologically. And season one, episode 7A, Doug's Cool Shoes, in which Doug feels self-conscious about his old sneakers and seeks cool new basketball shoes, even if the only size left in stock is 10 sizes too big for him, is ripped straight from the original concept for the Doug children's book, Doug Gets a New Pair of Shoes, that Jenkins took shopping for publishers in the 80s. The original run of Doug was still a really fun time for the cast, crew, and viewers alike. Patty Mayonnaise's voice actress, Constance Shulman, remembered with fondness, cramming into the studio with the other voice actors and actresses to record lines together. Billy West loved the Doug character, how deep and moral he was, and claimed to see a bit of himself in the kid. The writing crew cared deeply about the Doug character as well, and even got into arguments about what course of action he should take at times. In a season four episode, Doug's in the Money, Doug finds money on the sidewalk, and the show's writers passionately debated in the writer's room whether or not he should give it in, whether or not he'd be rewarded for doing so, what kind of reward he should receive. For those curious, he ends up receiving a stick of gum as a reward, because, as Jenkins put it himself, and I quote, I wanted Doug to do something that hurt where there was no tangible reward, end quote, but which was still the right thing to do. Doug and the other two Nicktoons that aired alongside it proved to be hits with general audiences, and Nickelodeon started turning its big IPs into juggernauts, popping out merchandise, including home releases of the show's episodes. Nickelodeon even made a deal with 20th Century Fox in 1993 to develop original movies based on the first three Nicktoons, including a Doug movie. However, Viacom bought Paramount Pictures in 1994, and the plans for any Nicktoon movies were canceled indefinitely. Of this original agreement, only the Rugrats movie would be developed and released in 1998, five years after it was originally conceived. During this time, Jenkins and his studio, Jumbo Pictures, worked on other projects here and there, including an unaired pilot called Psyched for Snuppa in 1993, and between 1993 and 1994, a direct-to-video special called Richard Scarry's Best Videos Ever. This being a special based around the work of legendary children's book writer and illustrator Richard Scarry, who I said earlier was a major inspiration for Jenkins growing up. Most famously, though, was a children's show made for Nickelodeon called Allegra's Window. Like Sesame Street and Pinwheel before it, created at Jumbo Pictures by Jenkins, John Hoffman, and Jan Fleming Candler about a little girl dealing with the ordinary trials and tribulations of being a little girl, like Sesame Street and Pinwheel before it, Allegra's Window featured morals for the characters to learn, a mix of live action and puppetry, and musical numbers. Other than this show, Jumbo Pictures would produce a special for ESPN and a direct-to-video children's movie about the Bible, while the studio was still independent. Which leads me to around 1994 to 1995, a major turning point on the journey that Doug would take. The original deal with Nickelodeon had called for 65 episodes of Doug, and at this time, 52 of these episodes had aired in 13-episode seasons, each episode being split into two 11-minute stories. The final episode of Season 4 would air on January 2nd, 1994, with a heartwarming episode about Doug learning not to be afraid about graduating from elementary school. But in a stunning decision... Nickelodeon refused to order a fifth and final 13-episode season of Doug. There are different theories as to why. The reason cited by Nickelodeon executives is that they were dealing with a budget freeze at the time, and another season of a relatively expensive-to-make show such as Doug was inopportune. 
But there was another theory, one regarding Nickelodeon's business practices that seem very familiar to us even to this day. Like I said, Doug was one of the three original Nicktoons and was joined by the likes of The Ren and Stimpy Show and Rugrats. Apparently, Nickelodeon executives had been expecting Doug to perform the best out of these three. But everyone was surprised when Rugrats became the ratings giant and cash cow of the early Nicktoons. I've been around long enough to identify the Nickelodeon formula when I see it. Expect every show to live up to your cash cow, and when it doesn't, quietly cancel it. It's the recipe for failure that led to the cancellation of so many beloved shows. Invader Zim, El Tigre, The Mighty Bee, Robot and Monster, Harvey Beaks, etc, etc. Because they couldn't match Spongebob's numbers. John Chris Falusi, whose show Ren and Stimpy had ended in 1996 and had left him on bad terms with Nickelodeon, publicly aired his belief that Doug's fifth season was cancelled because of the studio's astronomical expectations for Doug to be performing as well as Rugrats. But that said, John Chris Falusi may have been a little biased against Nick. It's definitely possible that the unhealthy mindset of trying to match every show to the one performing at the top wouldn't come around until the runaway success of Spongebob at the turn of the century, but I admit I do see inklings of this business philosophy in the decision to go back on the agreement with Jenkins. Anyway, with Nickelodeon not budging on picking up Doug's fifth season, the show didn't go quietly into that good night like the shows I mentioned earlier, Invader Zim, Robot and Monster, etc., etc., because Jumbo Pictures owned the rights to the show and its characters, not Nickelodeon itself. Nickelodeon would never really risk this again and would henceforth have any properties they were picking up signed away to them. So Jenkins, Campbell, and Jumbo Pictures went looking for potential buyers, and there were definitely some interested shoppers. One network that wanted Doug was ABC, but plenty of other networks offered deals, and every time that happened, Jumbo Pictures contacted Nickelodeon, letting them know that through their contract, they still had two years to reconsider letting Doug go. And ooh, hey, look at all these interested buyers. You're sure you don't want to just hold on to us? But Nickelodeon would not be moved, and so Jumbo Pictures prepared for a deal with ABC right as ABC was purchased in its entirety by the Walt Disney Company. However, Disney was just as interested in the Doug property, needing to fill up the Saturday morning block for the ABC network they just bought. Plus, they really weren't fond of Nickelodeon, the new kid on the block cashing in on children's media and animation, which used to be Disney's thing. So Disney purchased not only Doug, but Jumbo Pictures itself in a multi-million dollar deal with Jim Jenkins and David Campbell, in which the studio would become another of Disney's new holdings, and Jenkins and Campbell came on as fully-fledged Disney executives. In turn, Disney would receive ownership of the Doug trademark and all rights to future merchandising. Although Nickelodeon retained the rights to all pre-existing episodes and continues to air them as reruns and has put them on Paramount+, Plus. This was the beginning of a new chapter for Doug. Production of the show moved from New York City to Los Angeles. As a result, the cast members, who were all based in and around New York, had to start recording their lines remotely, leaving them with a much weaker connection with one another as opposed to the buddy relationships they'd developed while recording together during the original Nickelodeon run. In addition, not all of the cast even carried over from the Nickelodeon run. Well, actually, almost all of them did. But there was a huge hole in the cast. A hole shaped like Billy West. West, who had been the voice of Doug himself, as well as Roger Klotz in several smaller parts, including one of Roger's goons and other background characters, did not make the jump from Nickelodeon to Disney with the rest of the cast. Over the course of the 90s, West had skyrocketed in fame and popularity, in part due to his role as Doug, but also Stimpy and Ren and Stimpy, and had developed a knack for impersonating the characters of Mel Blanc, like Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck. This got him a starring role in the 1996 film Space Jam as these characters, among others. 
Basically, by 1996, when the Disney acquisition of Doug was underway, Billy West was a very expensive man to get to the table, and Disney didn't want to fork over what they saw as far too much money for one voice actor. This was in contrast to the wishes of most of the original cast and crew, including Jim Jenkins himself, who lobbied hard for Disney to bring West aboard. It was not to be, and the role of Doug went to Thomas McHugh, a lesser-known voice actor. Jenkins was keen on McHugh, though, and liked him a lot, even joking that if you just pretend Doug's voice changed due to puberty, it becomes a non-issue. Billy West's other roles on Doug, including Roger Klotz, were taken over by voice actor Chris Phillips. Despite the fact that he didn't join Doug until that Disney run, people who grew up on Nickelodeon may still remember Chris Phillips. He was the voice of Face, that big smiley face that took over your TV screens in between shows on Nick Jr. When I first saw the Disney version of Doug and all the different looking character designs and locations, I figured it was a requirement that Nickelodeon didn't let Disney use the old characters exactly the way they'd been portrayed in the original series. I was unable to find concrete proof pinning the decision to tweak almost every design of the show on Jenkins or Campbell or other crew members or Nickelodeon executives or Disney executives, but whoever's idea it was, it's pretty jarring. Some of these changes are so tiny, weird, and insignificant, they scream executive meddling. Between Doug's longer sleeves, Skeeter's new jacket, Patty's bad haircut, you get a vibe that Disney wanted to make these pre-existing characters their own, however way they could. Connie, a kind of chubby side character in the original series, goes to weight loss camp and becomes slim in the Disney series, which sparked a minor controversy as many female viewers found this offensive. Though it is worth noting that Disney's Doug had an episode, Doug's Chubby Buddy, that tried to tackle eating disorders among young women. So maybe the drastic change of Connie was just a lack of judgment. But some of these changes drastically affect the plot, such as the random decision to have the Hawker Burger, the tween hangout spot from the original series, where Doug first met almost all of his friends when his family moved to Bluffington and Doug bags a nematode, switched owners to become a fancy restaurant, leading Doug and his friends having to find a new hangout that serves the exact same purpose as the Hawker Burger. In fact, while watching, you'll periodically forget it's even a different place. Through a series of intertwining events, Roger's family becomes super rich, which definitely took away from his character since he's gone from being the snarky trailer park kid to a spoiled brat in the vein of B.B. Bluff, who's already a character, Jenkins has gone on record saying he did this to have fun with new stories. So I, actually, I do get a feeling a lot of these changes were, in fact, his idea. Then in the first season of Disney Doug, rather infamously, Doug's parents have a baby. But the baby does absolutely nothing after she's born. In the 50 episodes that the baby's a character, I can only think of one episode titled Doug O Baby, where she actually serves any purpose at all. The Disney version of Doug also introduced a bunch of other new characters, mostly in the form of fairly one-off teachers at the cast's new middle school, such as the band teacher acts like a drill sergeant. One important new character was Guy Graham, an upperclassman, who acts as sort of a rival for, of Doug's for Patty's affection. In almost every episode where this plot comes up, Patty rebuffs his advances, kind of rolling her eyes and acknowledging that Guy's a total blowhard, while Doug is genuine and a close friend. Remember this, guys. It'll be important later. Instead of pairing together two 11-minute episodes, Disney instead ordered full-length 22-minute episodes for their version of the show. It's also worth noting that another massive change was the sound design and musical direction. Despite the fact that Fred Newman returned to continue his voice at work as Porkchop Skeeter and Mr. Dink, he was not put in charge of music. Some of the background music utilized very basic mouth noises, slight scatting, whistling, and humming... But these moments are few and far between, basically just the new intro music and the occasional establishing shot. Other than these instances, most of the background music is traditional background music, fairly bland, forgettable, 
lacking the magic of Newman sound design. Disney Doug even had the Beats, the fictional band that Doug and his friends loved to listen to, break up and stop making music. Though this is somewhat lampshaded as it became a running gag that even though the members of the band couldn't stand each other, they'd just keep getting the band back together and breaking up over and over again throughout the series. Disney's Doug went on for three seasons. Since four seasons aired on Nickelodeon, these are technically seasons five, six, and seven. The first episode centers around all the changes I brought up as Doug struggles to deal with going to a new school and dealing with various problems, including a Rich Roger and a closed-off Honkerberger. And the rest of the Disney series actually had some major plots that carried over multiple episodes, including the building and renaming of the new middle school, and Doug and Skeeter's search for a mythical beast supposedly dwelling in the waters of Lucky Duck Lake. Remember this, this will also be important later. I always like to give credit to shows from this era that have season-spanning background stories, since it was relatively uncommon for Western cartoons at the time, it's why Dilbert got a storytelling shout-out on my 90s cartoons top 10 from December. Anyway, the Disney acquisition of Jumbo Pictures led to a revival of the Doug series, but it also led to new programs that Disney developed through Jumbo. One of these was an animated series based on 101 Dalmatians, creatively titled 101 Dalmatians the Series, which aired on ABC from 1997 to 1998. The series took place after the events of the 1961 film, with the puppies going on misadventures at their Dalmatian plantation. The show apparently included some characters from the original 1956 children's novel, 101 Dalmatians by Dodie Smith, but not the Disney movie, namely one of the main characters, a Dalmatian runt named Cadpig. Kind of interesting. Most of the cast and crew supplied by Disney to Jumbo Pictures during the production of the 101 Dalmatian series came from the Timon and Pumbaa series, a spin-off of The Lion King that started in 1995. These included the latter show's executive producers, Bob Ganaway and Tony Craig. Many of these crew members, Ganaway and Craig included, would go on to work on shows such as The House of Mouse and Lilo and Stitch. So while writing the script, I felt like the name Bob's Ganaway sounded super familiar. I mean, how many times have you heard someone named Bob's? Well, a quick Google search told me that Bob's Ganaway was also the executive producer behind Monsters at Work. <laughs> if you've listened to our episode on that show, you already know my thoughts. And if you haven't, you should go listen to it. But there's something super weird about the idea that the creator of Doug and the producer of Monsters at Work were both a part of the same show at some point. At least that's weird to me. Anyway, in addition to the 101 Dalmatian series, Jenkins also created PB&J Otter for Playhouse Disney. The show aired from 1998 to 2000, and it's actually the first of Jenkins' work I am familiar with, watching reruns when I was a toddler, years before I had ever even heard of Doug. The show centered around a family of otters and their misadventures in their rural hometown, specifically the main character of the three otter kids, Peanut, Jelly, and Butter. Unlike the 101 Dalmatian series, which seems to me more like the premise, cast, and crew were dumped on Jenkins and Jumbo Pictures by Disney, PB&J Otter seems like it came right out of Jenkins' imagination and has his touch all over it. For one, ever concerned with morals, Jenkins had the show monitored by the Cognitive Skills Group of Harvard University, in a project titled Project Zero, which was tasked with, well, monitoring each episode and making sure that it provided an educational message for children. Plus, a lot of Jenkins' old cast and crew got spots in PB&J Otter. Fred Newman worked on the show's soundtrack, and Chris Phillips, the voice actor of Roger Klotz in the Disney series, played several roles in the show, including many of the town's animals, but mainly Ernest Otter, the father of the Otter family. Even Doug Prees, a voice actor who played Doug's father, along with Vice Principal Bone, among other characters on Doug, made a few appearances in PB&J Otter. PB&J Otter was well received, but with all the new shows Disney was allowing him to do, Jenkins' workload was no longer reserved for Doug. As a result, he was somewhat distanced from production on the Disney series. 
and was no longer hands-on with every episode as he had been for the Nickelodeon run. With less creative input from Jenkins, the episodes didn't quite have the same feel as the original, and cast members, including Constance Shulman, cited the remote recording as a lot less fun for the cast members. And if the cast and crew had issues with the show, audiences were right there with them. The Disney series of Doug didn't perform nearly as well as the original. Even from a nostalgia standpoint, when 90s kids lovingly remember Doug, they very rarely even mention the three seasons that ran on ABC. As someone who discovered Nickelodeon Doug around 2009-2010 and didn't see any of Disney's Doug until late last year, I can definitely see the difference firsthand. Like I said, the original just has more charm in terms of the stories, the characters. I mean, by the final season of Disney Doug, every other episode was about Doug imagining himself as Quail Man. Some of them even without the context that typically accompanied such stories. Just 22 straight minutes of Quail Man. Really seemed to me that the writers were struggling to come up with stories. But despite its lukewarm reviews, Disney was still sure to pump out as much Doug merchandise as possible and bring the show to new fields. This included, in 1997, the publication of the book that had started it all, Doug Gets a New Pair of Shoes, now titled Doug's Big Shoe Disaster. In January 1999, Doug and his friends made their grand debut in the Disney parks with a 30-minute musical stage show at MGM Studios, now Hollywood Studios, in Walt Disney World titled Doug Live. The show involved Doug trying to take Patty to a Beats concert but getting thwarted by Roger. Audience participation was encouraged as four lucky tourists would be selected to play the Beats themselves and one little kid would play Quail Kid and act as a sidekick to Quail Man during the fantasy sequence of the show. Apparently they'd even give this kid underpants to wear on the outside of his or her pants. I guess I have to admire the dedication to detail. But all of that was gearing up for Disney's big plans for Doug, taking him to the movies. That's right, by 1999, a Doug movie was in full development, and though it was originally just supposed to be a straight-to-VHS film, you'll recall that Disney had a ton of those going on in the late 90s, circumstances changed the minds of Disney executives. And those circumstances were the millions and millions of dollars made by the Rugrats movie, which Nickelodeon released theatrically in 1998, and which opened at number one in the U.S. box office. If Doug's old rival could do so well with a theatrical film, then surely Doug itself would have no problem going to theaters. So plans were changed, and the straight-to-home release Doug movie, under the working title The First Doug Movie Ever, became Doug's first movie, and it was released on March 26, 1999, and directed by Maurice Joyce, who uh, previously worked on the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Beavis and Butthead Do America. <laughs> Anyway, the plot of the movie revolved around the culmination of the third season of Disney Doug, or the seventh season of Doug. Doug and Skeeter finally find the monster of Lucky Duck Lake. Turns out to be quite friendly. Yes, monsters are now real in the Doug universe, I guess, but it's explained to be the result of severe lake pollution by the Bluff Corporation to the point of mutating this monster, who the boys named Herman Melville due to his love of eating books. At the same time, Guy Graham sweeps Patty off her feet, and Guy uses his friendship with Bill Bluff to try to cover up the existence of the lake monster before Doug and Skeeter can expose him to the world, or even tell Patty. Doug's first movie was a critical disaster, even earning itself a nomination for a Stinker Award, which is probably something like the Razzies, Oscar parodies bestowed upon the worst movies of all time. The renowned critic Roger Ebert gave the movie two and a half stars out of five, which isn't too awful, but it's a far cry from quality. I watched the film for the first time a few weeks back for the sake of this episode. Coincidentally, I watched it the day after Valentine's Day, which is when this movie mostly takes place. I knew going in that the movie was very disliked, but I imagine it was probably just because it was a movie based on a cartoon. And especially in the late 90s, those didn't always do well. I mean, 
Pokemon, the first movie, sitting at a 16% critic score on Rotten Tomatoes. And I still think that movie kicks butt. So screw what the critics have to say, right? Well, not quite. Because Doug's first movie even sucks by Doug's standards. I mean, Disney Doug sucks by Nickelodeon Doug's standards. And then Doug's first movie is kind of like a really long, painfully mediocre episode of Disney Doug. Beloved characters from the show's colorful cast barely do anything. Rogers give it a running gag for the whole show, and that's it. I think Doug's family members have maybe one line apiece. And in one of the most infamous creative decisions, Patty acts nothing like she does in the show either, treating Doug like she's never met him before and like he isn't one of her closest friends, falling for Guy's charm despite countless times she's expressed her mild distaste for him throughout the show, and treating Doug like he's some kind of nefarious liar after multiple instances of miscommunication. Some of the antics with the monster was cute. I can see little kids liking that aspect. There were a few lines that were really funny, um, like kind of just made me laugh. Like there's one line where Skeeter is going to make an announcement and he just starts scatting. And he said, I've always wanted to do that in front of a crowd. I don't know. It caught me by surprise. I thought that that line that just, just kind of came to me while I was writing the script. The soundtrack wasn't half bad, even if it could have used more of Fred Newman's touch. And there were some moments I felt like it would have been neat to see in a theater, like during any brief Quailman segments, even just for the novelty of it. And the final minute of the movie is really heartwarming, especially since it serves as the series finale to the entire Doug franchise. More on that in a minute. But if the best I have to say about the movie is the last 60 seconds of it were good, you probably have some idea that Doug's first movie was not very good. I guess there's a reason that, unlike with the Pokemon movie I brought up earlier, general audiences also rated this movie rotten. In fact, audiences found this movie so rotten, Disney canceled all plans for future Doug movies. The title Doug's first movie was no accident. Disney really was hoping this film would take off and provide a comfortable little movie franchise for themselves. But despite the fact that this film made its money back, an easy task seeing as it only cost $5 million to make, Disney abandoned any idea of more Doug movies. Here's a fun fact I found while researching this episode. Apparently, Doug's first movie was the final movie ever released in the U.S. to utilize traditional cells for animation. Fun fact for you. Anyways, in many aspects, the flop of Doug's first movie represented the beginning of the end for Doug. The show's seventh season, which had started in September 1998, drew to a close in June 1999, after the movie was released in March. The final episode, Doug's Marriage Madness, featured almost every character in the show's history in either speaking roles or cameos, including some that hadn't been seen since the Nickelodeon run, such as Mrs. Wingo, Doug's old teacher. Many overarching stories from the series are bookended with Judy going off to college, Al and Moo finally getting girlfriends, yes, that was a real running gag in the show, the useless baby funny says her first word, and Patty and Doug prepare to go on an actual date. This is the last episode of Doug ever released, though the movie would serve as the chronological finale, closing the book, or the journal, har har, not only on Disney's Doug, but Doug as a whole. Disney would not order another season. Disney Doug was obviously a very mixed bag. I do think it had its tasteful episodes here and there, some even as good as the original series, but these were not nearly as common. <laughs> David Campbell thought the Disney episodes of the series were quirkier and liked them more, but Jenkins came to find that, like most people who watch both, he liked the more creator-driven Nicktoon version of Doug. And a quote to an interviewer, Jenkins said, and I quote, I mostly agree with Doug fans who think the original 104 11-minute Doug stories made for Nick were the best. End quote. With this series, he was more hands-on and aimed to create a product that would still be timeless, able to be enjoyed 30 years later. I'm serious, that's an actual quote he said, relevant 30 years later. Well, coincidentally, those 30 years have just passed. Doug will be celebrating its 31st anniversary later this year, and I can agree, it's aged wonderfully. But reflections aside, Doug was done, 
In many ways, it was quite poetic, a show that started in 1991 and totally ended in 1999. The only true 90s cartoon in many respects. In 2000, Disney shut down Jumbo Pictures, and in 2001, Doug Live gave its final performance at Walt Disney World. The building that housed the Doug Live performance would see different seasonal performances over the next few years before settling on the American Idol experience in 2009, which was ultimately replaced by a Frozen sing-along attraction in 2014, which remains there to this day. With Jumbo Pictures shut down and dug firmly in the rearview mirror, Jenkins moved on. He and Campbell co-founded a new animation company, Cartoon Pizza, with Jenkins as president and Campbell as CEO. With full ownership of an animation group for the first time since his Nickelodeon days, Jenkins had fun creating new cartoons. With traditional hand-drawn cells, a major boast as animation got more and more digital, and showing them off to different companies, including the four major companies from his past. The first was Disney. Jenkins and Campbell were still Disney executives, technically, and though Doug had ended, joined by PB&J Otter in 2000, and Jumbo Pictures had been dissolved, Jenkins still had content for Disney. Cartoon Pizza made the show Stanley for Playhouse Disney in 2001, another one of my young childhood's favorite shows about a young boy who deals with problems by consulting a book of animals, or as the book was officially called, the great big book of everything, the show even had a theme song by the Baja Men of Who Let the Dogs Out fame. In addition to Stanley, Cartoon Pizza also developed JoJo's Circus in 2003, which followed a young girl living in a circus-themed town and learning to be a clown while going to a school for aspiring circus performers. I think we can all agree we've never heard of anything quite like that. Jenkins worked on the show with his wife, Lisa, and it's also noteworthy in that JoJo's Circus was fully stop-motion, a first for Jenkins. But it was actually not long after the formation of Cartoon Pizza that Jenkins and Campbell found a helpful business connection from Jenkins' distant past, the Sesame Workshop. Yes, the same organization Jenkins worked with in the 80s as the head graphic designer for Square One Television. Jenkins and Campbell struck a deal with Sesame Workshop. If Sesame would house the Cartoon Pizza Company in their New York City office, Cartoon Pizza would produce shorts for Sesame Street. The deal went off without a hitch, and for a large part of the early 2000s, in addition to working on shows like Stanley and JoJo Circus, Jenkins also ingrained himself and his new company into Sesame Workshop. With this new partnership, Cartoon Pizza would return to Jenkins' old stomping ground, Nickelodeon, for a show on the Noggin Children's Block, Pinky Dinky Doo. The show aired in 2005 and followed the exploits of an imaginative young girl named Pinky as she delighted her friends and family with crazy stories. These crazy stories were inspired by the stories Jenkins would tell to his children when he tucked them into bed. How wholesome. In an epic Renaissance Mac crossover event, it turns out that, in addition to Cartoon Pizza and Sesame Workshop, Discovery Kids also joined in on the show during its first season to help with production. The more you know. The last thing I could find from Cartoon Pizza was a little series for PBS Sprout called Musical Mornings with Koo, featuring a CGI bird singing songs and talking to the children who would wake up early to watch cartoons. This aired from 2007 to 2009. It's an odd twist of fate. The final show that Jenkins would ever make for a major company would be for PBS, where he got his very first entertainment job all the way back in the 70s before joining the fledging Nickelodeon. I did find evidence for a biblical-themed show he did called Hoop Dogs, but conflicting sources said that it aired in 1993, 2004, and 2011, and information on it as a whole is just super scarce. I just know that it's a passion project about CGI dogs learning about the Ten Commandments while they play basketball. That's interesting, I guess. By 2015, though, Cartoon Pizza had been dissolved, all of the children's shows they had been working on having ended by the start of the 2010s. Today, Jenkins lives in Georgia, and as recently as 2012, he had plans to get back into the animation industry, trying to come up with a third independent animation group alongside David Campbell. He's still very interested in animation, 
Though he's gone on record saying he's not as big on modern cartoons. They usually lack the morals he liked to show in Doug and in his children's shows. He's also still a doodler, hosting private art galleries of his own work. The future could have more in store for Jim Jenkins. But what about the future of Doug? Disney still attains all rights to the show, although in a 2016 interview, Jenkins expressed his doubts that Disney would ever revive Doug. However, I'm pretty sure the chances of a Doug revival are close to inevitable. <laughs> Both the Disney's Doug series and Doug's first movie were included in the debut lineup of Disney Plus when it launched in November 2019. Billy West said in a 2013 interview that he'd be open to returning to voice the main character of the series someday. Let's be honest, in the era of reboots and revivals where nostalgia sells, and in a decade that has seen the return of Rugrats and the upcoming return of Ren and Stimpy, Doug's original sister shows, it seems like it's only a matter of time before Disney drudges Doug back up to try to appeal to all of our childhoods. Since Disney Plus has started, really since as far back as the live-action remakes and those pointless straight-to-VHS sequels, Disney has loved cashing in on our childhoods. And if they'll bring back cheaper by the dozen, there's no way they're going to pass up on Doug. At least that's my bold prediction. Keep your eyes peeled, guys, because we may not have seen the last of everyone's favorite 11 and a half year old You've just listened to another episode of Geeks Crossing. This has been my longest script in quite a while, and this episode was delayed for weeks just because of all the research that went into it. So I really appreciate you guys listening to this. If you want to learn more, I quoted from the Jim Jenkins interviews from whatiwantanow.com and Splitsider. I also think the 2013 book, Slimed, an oral history of Nickelodeon's golden age, might make for some pretty cool reading if you'd like to learn more about that aspect of Doug's history. Please continue to support us on all available platforms, including Anchor, Spotify, Apple Music, Google Play, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Audible, and Amazon Music. Tell your friends and family about us, especially the 90s kids in your life. And uh, join us on Discord. Tell us what you think of Doug. DM us on Instagram. I want to know your thoughts. Did you guys watch Doug when you grew up? Did you watch Doug later? That's all I've got, though. So I'm Matt and Patty. You're the mayonnaise for me.